Today's sponsor is Audible, with an unmatched selection of audiobooks, original audio shows, news, comedy, and more. Get a free audiobook with a 30-day trial at audible.com decode. Today is also sponsored by SoFi, a new kind of finance company that offers student loan refinancing at low rates. SoFi members save, on average, $19,000 and can save you even more through an employer partner program. See how SoFi can help you at SOFI.com. Terms and conditions apply at SoFi.com slash legal. Recode Radio presents Recode Decode, hosted by Kara Swisher, powered by digital media. Hi, I'm Kara Swisher, executive editor of Recode. You may know me as the person who wishes Angry Birds were an Olympic sport, but in my spare time, I talk tech, and you're listening to Recode Decode, a podcast about tech and media's key players, big ideas, and how they're changing the world we live in. You can subscribe to Recode Decode at iTunes.com slash Recode Decode, and while you're there, leave us a review. Today in the red chair is Gary Zenkel, the president of NBC Olympics. And here to interview him is my colleague, Ina Freed. Hi, Ina. Hey, Kara. How you doing? So given this is sports ball, I decided to turn the mic over to you. Correct? I think that's a correct decision on my part. I think so. I'm kind of an Olympics nut, too. Yes. So this should be fun. So what makes the Olympics interesting this year besides the Zika virus? Well, certainly the setting, Brazil, uh, you know, being obviously quite picturesque. You know, I think it's also, it's always a venue for the latest technology. I think they spend so much money to get the rights. They have to do everything they can to make us watch, you know, a million hours. And short of beaming it into our eyeballs, which I think is going to have to wait for four years from now. You know, there's tons of stuff. Virtual reality, I'm excited to hear what's in store. Mm -hmm. And what else do you think? What's the biggest technology change from the last Olympics? I think the role of live streaming and getting things on our mobile devices has really shifted. So some of that started already with London. But I think uh, a lot more people are going to watch parts of it from mobile devices. Great. All right. I'm very excited. Now let's take a listen to what you and Gary talked about. Thanks, Kara. I'm actually here with Gary Zankel. Uh, Gary, you've been doing this Olympics things for a while now. Since 1997, you've been involved with the broadcast, right? Talk about how things have changed in your time. Sure. My first Olympics was in 92. Came to NBC as a lawyer, so my role was limited to some contract work back then. But uh, then did work on Atlanta and, um, and ever since. Atlanta in 1996 was one television channel with 171 total hours of coverage. I believe as we've recently announced, Rio will be a total of 6,700 or so hours of Olympic coverage distributed across 11 different channels and, of course, digital platforms, web, mobile, set-top, etc. So it's changed quite a bit since 1996. So that's kind of the how many hours and how you see it. I imagine a lot has changed in how you produce it and what it takes to go into it, uh, in addition to just more people for more hours. Was that even in HD uh, for the Atlanta game? No, of course not. Although I must tell you that we did begin to uh, experiment with HD back in 2002 in the Salt Lake City Olympics before there was any HD content available there were a couple of venues, but in any event, uh, no, of course it wasn't. Uh, it is now fully HD, and even advancing slowly, we'll test out uh, a 4K platform uh, or format with a few hours uh, in Rio. But the complexity, of course, of producing 6,000 hours versus 171 is enormous. Um, it's taken more people, but more than the additional amount of people, it's, it's equipment, technology, it's moving a lot of content 
uh, around, some of which we now take back to the states and produce uh, several of our cable platforms from there. We process a lot of the digital content that we distribute out of our home base in Stanford, Connecticut. So it's a, a wildly complex operation that has taken full advantage of the advancements of both broadcast and digital technology that have happened at a rapid pace over the last couple of decades. So most of the faces that we're used to seeing, those people will be on the ground in Brazil, but there are some of the shows, some of the cable shows that are actually produced here in the States? They are. Of course, competition is produced at a <laughs> venue. No athletes exactly. in New Jersey, right? Uh, only former athletes uh, in Stanford, Connecticut. So yes, we will have roughly 1,100 people that will operate out of our broadcast facility in Stanford, NBC Sports Group's uh, home international broadcast center. We'll do it out of about seven control rooms and eight different studios, 60 different edit rooms, a highlights factory where we take in all of the feeds and all of the content and slice it up uh, in different forms, about 280 uh, feature pieces a day, so that's sort of the craft edit content, and then the rest we're cutting those uh, highlights of virtually everything that's going on. There's a very sophisticated logging system, and we take all that content and we code it for the platform that we're distributing to, whether it's mobile, web, whether it's set-top VOD, connected television. We're pushing out content to some of the social media networks, out-of-home health clubs and taxi cabs and gas stations. And uh, so uh, circulation of content is something that we're very serious about and have found that the more content we make available, the more accessible it is, the more viewing that we're seeing in our television broadcast. The big concern with uh, trying out live streaming with London was if we do all this live streaming, is that going to hurt primetime? And what did you guys find? Uh, we found it had a, the opposite effect. The more content that was consumed on the more devices yielded more actual television viewing time from those consumers. And what's some of the psychology behind that? Because I imagine, you know, the thinking initially was, oh, if they're watching it, then they don't want to see it again. Um, I imagine what you guys found is actually watching highlights or getting scores on your mobile devices, not really an ideal experience for really seeing it and that people want to see the actual event on their biggest screen. Is that generally what you think is going yeah, on? I, I think it's the difference. It, re- it really highlights the difference between the Olympics, which is as much a cultural event as it is a sports event. And the audience that comes to the Olympics, which is massive and very diverse demographically in every aspect, they're coming the stories and to share in those incredible epic moments that happen uh, only during the Olympics every couple of years. And so the information that gets circulated during the course of an Olympic day, whether since London it's in the form of a live stream or a highlight, before London it was tremendous amount of results information that was made available when the internet started publishing that type of content. Uh, we have found that that has really fueled the conversation. It has fueled the interest. And especially when the stories are good ones, when there is American victories or other great stories, great rivalries that have been developed either by us or otherwise, 
it churns more of the conversation, leads to more viewing, more of that primetime shared experience that the Olympics has you know, built uh, an incredible franchise on the back of. We're going to get a ton into the new technologies and new social platforms that really are making this Olympics different from some of the ones in the past. But I want to start with the basics. How is the average American that watches most of their content on their TV, linear TV, how are they going to be able to see the Olympics? You mentioned that many hours. Couldn't possibly do it with one channel. I know you guys are doing it with a lot of channels. Obviously, NBC will be the home for, I imagine, the marquee events. How are you looking at the other channels? Well, everybody behaves differently, but here would be a a somewhat typical linear television Olympic day, which would start with the Today Show, most likely, uh, 7 a.m. broadcast that will originate from one end of Copacabana Beach, building a very sophisticated set out there to pick up really the energy that uh, Rio has, uh, has so much of, especially, no doubt, around the period of the Olympics. And so the Today Show, in its traditional Olympic fashion, will bring people up to date on what perhaps was really moving them the day before. Uh, Athletes will join the Today Show crew uh, interviews, and they will no doubt uh, move around Rio uh, and offer their audience an opportunity to experience the culture, the people, uh, the topography, which is amazing. They'll talk a lot about what's happening that day, and that will lead the person who has time to continue to sit in front of a television uh, either to NBC Network, which will continue with a daytime show anchored from the other end of Copacabana Beach, again, right on the beach with uh, a few of our hosts moving the audience around from the probably some of the most compelling events that's happening at that moment, late morning into the afternoon. NBC Sports Network, which is NBC's you know, sports linear home, starts at 8 o'clock every morning, goes till midnight. So the entire broadcast day is on NBC Sports Network, and you'll see a lot of the Team USA team competition, soccer, basketball, volleyball, water polo, uh, and and many other sports. If you have a keen interest in other sports, USA Network picks up during the course of the afternoon, MSNBC also during the course of the afternoon, and CNBC comes on when the market closes at 5 and runs up to the primetime show at 8 o'clock. If you're a golf fan, and it happens to be the final four days of the first week or the final four days of the second week, you're going to tune in to the Golf Channel and you're going to watch the first Olympic golf tournament in 120 years or 100 years. And I imagine you're personally pretty excited about that. For those who don't know, you played golf at the University of Michigan. I am. Um, I believe that though the Olympics will not be obviously deemed a golf major, those are the big four every year, it'll be an event that the world's best care deeply about. And golf used to be a big Olympic sport. Most people don't know, but it was well, you know, way back when. It was a century ago uh, before my time. But, yes, it was an Olympic sport. In any event, just to continue with the day, if you're a tennis fan, uh, the entire tennis tournament is on Bravo. That's through the afternoon and into the evening. If you want to watch Spanish-language coverage, uh, whether you're Spanish-dominant, Hispanic, or otherwise, 
Uh, Telemundo picks it up in the morning into the afternoon, and NBC Universo, which is our uh, Spanish language cable network, picks it up until 8 o'clock at night. Uh, there'll be a few big soccer games in the evening that uh, Universal will stay with. And then you're into the primetime show, and that's 8 to midnight. Uh, that's Bob Costas hosting. Uh, that is some of the marquee events that have historically drawn the biggest U.S. audiences, whether it's swimming live, beach volleyball live, track and field live, uh, gymnastics, diving, many other sports, but those tend to be the marquee. And then if you're still hungry, uh, Ryan Seacrest uh, hosts our late night show, which picks up after late local news at 12.30, back on Copacabana Beach, 1.30 in the morning, uh, Rio time, where we expect the beach to be very much alive. And he will no doubt talk about some of the big events that day, have some, some athletes, have some others, and lead us into 7 a.m. the next morning when the Today Show starts again. So that's a really long day of traditional television. Uh, we have to take a quick break now for a word from our sponsors. When we come back, we're going to talk a little bit about the non-traditional ways that NBC is also providing content. Uh, once again, here's Kara Swisher. Thanks, Ina. Today's show is brought to you by SoFi. SoFi is a new kind of finance company that's helping people get out of student debt faster. Refinancing student loans with SoFi saves members on average $19,000. SoFi even partners with companies to help pay off employee loans. See how SoFi can help you at SoFi.com. That's S-O-F-I.com. Terms and conditions apply at SoFi.com slash legal. This episode is also brought to you by GoCD, the open source continuous delivery server created by ThoughtWorks. GoCD is the best integration and deployment tool you've probably never heard of. It offers a complete customization of your software's individual needs. There's no plugin or workaround needed. GoCD just goes. Spend more time delivering and less time configuring. Commercial support and enterprise add-ons, including disaster recovery, are available. Download GoCD for free at www.go.cd. Today's show is also sponsored by Oxford Road. Ever see a TV ad or hear one on the podcast and radio and think, that could be me? You can scale your business, build your brand, and leapfrog competitors. But it's expensive, and if you guess wrong, it's over. Step one, make sure digital works. Optimize your funnel, SEO, SEM, Facebook. Step two, call Oxford Row, the leading ad agency in consumer tech. They buy media and TV, radio, and podcasts based on over $100 million in performance data, so they're not guessing about what works. Oxford Road won't waste your money. They engineer ads to perform using their proprietary audiolytics process, and they do it for pennies. And their world-class analytics and attribution methods give you confidence in every line of performance, just like digital. Companies like Dollar Shave Club, MeUndies, Blue Apron, and more started with Oxford Road. Go to OxfordRoad.com scale, set up a free analysis, and find out what it would cost for you to test a TV, radio, or podcast. Go to OxfordRoad.com scale right now. Back to you, Ina. Thanks, Kara. We're here talking to Gary Zankel, the president of NBC Olympics. Uh, so we kind of outlined what you can see just by turning on your television if you have a cable package. There's obviously a lot more ways that people are consuming content. How do you guys approach on demand? How do you approach live streaming? And then I imagine this year a lot around social, whether it's Facebook or Snapchat, Twitter. How do you guys think about this? And then how is that going to experience itself for viewers? Sure. Well, let me let me start with the the digital foundation, which is our website, NBCOlympics.com. 
and our mobile apps, uh, the NBC Sports app and an NBC Olympics app. We've had these products offered to the American viewer since 2000. Uh, in their infancy, they were a companion to linear television coverage. It was schedules, it was results. As technology allowed, it was an occasional highlight. And then eventually we began to offer coverage of live events. As you mentioned before, in 2012, we began to live stream every second of competition coverage. And that's 3,000 plus hours. There, in any one day, we're taking in about 100 different live event streams and pushing them out again on the web and on our mobile platforms. Could be up to 40 simultaneous feeds because there are some venues like tennis where there are three or four courts going on at one time. There isn't a second of competition coverage that an American consumer can't watch. We will lay down commentary against all of these. And for the core fan of any one of those sports or fans of any one of those athletes or fans of nations that perhaps are nations of origin for them, there's an opportunity to view. We take the mobile app, which has every second of that competition coverage, plus opportunities to replay uh, events, plus the opportunity to watch simultaneously with a linear broadcast, those linear broadcast feeds, and we make them available on connected TV devices, Apple, Roku, Xbox, others. Now, they're all behind the authentication wall, which we can talk about if... So you basically, you need a cable subscription that covers just one of the cable channels, basically? Uh, well, it, it, it covers, right, the largest, the, the most distributed of our cable channels. Uh, so basically, anybody with a cable satellite telco subscription can view this digital package of content. And so we... Uh, we evolved uh, in the cable ecosystem with uh, the cable uh, satellite and telco companies as our partners. And yeah, I remember way back when there was like a pay-per-view, triple cast, gold, silver, bronze. Yes, well, that, that was back in 92, <laughs> and we, we typically try to avoid talking about that. Yes, but that was an, uh, 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 an effort back in 92 because there was always this massive content that was available from the host broadcast. Uh, and back in the day when we were one channel, uh, there was a lot of content that was not being made available. The triple cast was an effort to make that available, but the, the decision was made to charge a fee, which proved not to be the prudent one. The better decision was made to go to the cable industry and partner with the cable industry. And we have continued, to, as I've just discussed, to distribute more and more content in more and more ways, making it accessible. So if somebody wants, if they know they want to tune in, no shortage of ways, you're not going to miss a minute of content if you know what you want. One of the ways you guys are looking at social is, how do we get people interested in things that we, they don't know they want, but that their friends are interested? You have some deals with Snapchat and BuzzFeed. Talk about those specifics and then how you guys think about social media playing a role. And obviously your goal is to have me watch as many hours of program as I can keep my eyes open for. That's correct. And so we certainly have learned that in order to engage and reach and connect with the potential massive Olympic audience, it's not what it was two decades ago when promotion on NBC and some of the other channels and some paid media and some radio, and you'd pretty much 
have alerted uh, your audience that the Olympics was coming and why they should watch. Today, the attention of the audience is far more fragmented. The influences of some of the platforms that people spend uh, a lot of their media consumption time on are important. And so we have, for a long time, been working with those influencers, uh, in this case, social media companies, to inspire their audiences to watch and consume the Olympics. Our strategy has never changed. It has always been about connecting our audience with the athletes and their stories, giving them a reason to care. These are athletes and individuals who are incredibly relatable and yet participate in sports and endeavors that the audience is typically not that familiar with. So the kinds of segments that we've seen in the past, the up close and personal, where in the primetime segment, they cut us away and take us back into their backstory. Often, you know, people overcoming great odds, a lot of tragedy to be on the Olympic stage. Is that the kind of thing we'll see on Snapchat and social media? Well, just to clarify, the uh, the human stories are not always about human tragedy and uh, overcoming all kinds of obstacles. Sometimes they are, and that is something that an audience can find a way to relate to. But many of those stories are also about just ways in which characteristics of these incredible individuals that people can relate to, whether it's about the music or who inspired them, etc. In any event, yes, that is one way in which we will work with the social media companies is to connect with uh, athletes. But what we won't do is impose uh, on a company like BuzzFeed or a partner like BuzzFeed or Snapchat our production sensibility, but rather use their expertise and their ability to connect with the audience that they speak to so effectively to produce uh, and distribute content that is going to inspire, one, make people aware, but two, inspire uh, an interest, a curiosity uh, in the stories, in the athletes, in the rivalries, and a partnership that we're very excited about. I've mentioned both is with BuzzFeed uh, and with Snapchat, somewhat related. Uh, we will work with Snapchat on the production of a Discover channel, if you're familiar with their platform. BuzzFeed, who is a company we, NBC Universal, have an interest in, uh, but is also uh, a very clear expert in producing content for the Discover platform as well as, of course, uh, out into uh, other social media destinations. We will have 12, 13 BuzzFeed producers living side-by-side side and working side-by-side side with us in Rio, providing access, the access that we have uh, athletes, talent, content, a little bit of guidance on what we think the audience might deem the most engaging and in some cases where we're leading the audience, but never dictating the sensibility and the style with which they produce those stories. And that's fairly new. I mean, in general, NBC has widely used its own in-house networks and expertise and stuff, but traditionally other broadcasters, other mediums, to the degree that you guys used a Twitter or a Facebook, you would be producing stuff for a Twitter or Facebook and pushing it out, really bringing in other people. I mean, is it a recognition that there's a whole generation of people that don't 
consume content the way that NBC has traditionally delivered it? Or what, what's the thinking? Well, I think the recognition is that to reach an important segment of the audience requires one, well, requires effectively uh, creating and distributing and putting in front of those people and creating conversation around, uh, amongst those people, a content that, that, that is relatable uh, and compelling to them with a sensibility designed to, again, inspire and, and attract interest. I do believe, and we do believe, that at the end of the day, the way in which the American viewer will watch Michael Phelps and will watch the U.S. women's volleyball team or will watch Usain Bolt when he gets in the starting blocks or as he prepares to uh, you know, set another record and win a third or a gold medal in a third consecutive Olympics, will be on NBC. And it will be that incredibly well produced big screen coverage with great informative commentary and interesting graphics and great storytelling that they will gather together to watch. And that's obviously a multi-year, multi-billion dollar bet that NBC's met. You guys, I think, recently locked up the Olympics through, what is it, 2032? 2032. Uh, the longest deal, I think, ever. Uh, so we're going to take another break. Here again with a word from our sponsors is Kara Swisher. Thanks, Ina. Today's show is brought to you by Audible, which has an unmatched selection of audiobooks, original audio shows, news, comedy, and more. And you can listen to all of that wherever you are, thanks to Audible's free apps for iOS, Android, and Amazon devices. It's not a streaming or rental service. With Audible, you own the books. When you become an Audible member, you get free book every month, plus a 30% discount on all regularly priced audiobooks. Audible is offering our listeners a free audiobook of your choice and a free 30-day trial membership. Just go to audible.com slash decode, download a title free, and start listening. It's that easy. Go to audible.com slash D-E-C-O-D-E, that's audible.com slash decode, and get started today. I'd also like to tell you about Recode Media with Peter Kafka. So I am here in New York this week, and while I was wandering around Central Park, I happened upon Peter Kafka. Hey, and his, Kara. Hi, how How's you it doing? Going? And this is his studio where he tapes Recode Decode, which is in some weird comedy club. I think that's Peter's night job, correct? Uh, yeah, I clean comedy you clubs. You clean comedy clubs. For a living, because <laughs> you don't pay me enough. Yeah, that's true. Let's well, talk about that. I don't think that's the case. But in any case, we're here talking about Recode Media and the stuff you're doing, and you have some really exciting guests coming up, including one that... I have great admiration for. This is Alex Gibney, yes. the director. Not everyone has great admiration for him. People who work at Apple are mm -hmm. not Alex Gibney fans because he did a documentary about Steve Jobs. Yes. Very pointed. Alex Gibney's not a Steve Jobs fan, or at least not a complete Steve Jobs fan. But he's, he's sort of created this documentary factory. He's doing all sorts of amazing documentaries. And, and has and, and an astonishing clip. Mm -hmm. uh, he's the guy who made Going Clear, about right. the Scientology. Terrific, terrific documentary. A bunch of other famous stuff. Um, we had him on because he's got a new movie he's promoting about the Stuxnet. Say Stuxnet. that three times quickly. Stuxnet. Stuxnet. Stuxnet virus. Stuxnet. Keep saying it, Peter. I'll get it eventually. Anyway. anyway talk about hacking It's stuff. some bad stuff. Yeah. yeah. I don't really understand how it yeah. works, so he yeah. explained it to me. But honestly, I, the reason I like having any director on, they're not my favorite kind of guests, but they're mm -hmm. right up there because these guys can talk. Right. I think it's part of the gig, right? You have to be able to sort of talk to talent. You have to be able to explain your story. So it's The narrative. What happened? Wither narrative in the modern digital age. I don't know. I just type stuff on the All internet. right. Okay. <laughs> well, I'm excited to hear from him. I think he's a great uh, documentary filmmaker. Thanks, Kara. You can find Recode Media on iTunes 
iTunes, Google Play Music, or wherever you listen to your podcasts. Back to you, Ina. Thanks, Kara. We're talking to Gary Zankel. We've talked a lot about how people can watch the Rio Olympics. What is it about these Olympics that's going to be new and different from Olympics they've seen in the past? Are there new technologies? Are there new sports? What are the things that you're excited about as someone who's been doing this for a long time? There's a lot of new technology that the viewer doesn't experience, which simply gives us the ability to distribute more content, uh, higher quality, more searchable, There are, though, those technology additions that enhance the ability of our producers and our commentators to storytell. There's a technology company called Piero that will give us a tool that will enable us to show on replay a three-dimensional, 360 view of a performance, whether it be in gymnastics. There's a technology called Stromotion. This has been used by us and others uh, in chronicling a great sport event. And this is will break down a performance perhaps, again, in gymnastics or another sport where it goes frame by frame by frame. There are probably 10 other sports in which the host broadcaster will deploy different kinds of virtual technology. So the quality of the storytelling by using advances in technology gets better every time. And the Olympics has always been an opportunity because of its profile for companies with new leading edge technology to to work with. So we're excited about that. Data, of course, is deeper, gets richer. And for the first time on our digital platform, we will have access provided to the viewer to dig into deeper data while they're viewing a live stream so they can call up intermediate results, rankings, and then some additional layers of data. I think that continues to evolve as we move into uh, into the future of this long Olympic contract, more access to data. And you talked a little bit about these technologies that give you a surround presence in traditional TV. We hear a lot about virtual reality, but I think there's two sides to virtual reality in sports. One is, and we'll talk about in a second, actual VR headsets, whether it's Gear VR or Oculus or Cardboard. The other is, how do you bring that sense of virtual reality to a traditional broadcast? I wrote about one that Intel has that was used in the recent NBA. A finals. I think you're talking about a, a different but similar idea in the sense of how do you create that 360 degree sense of presence in a traditional broadcast? Is that an area that's really different, you think, for this Olympics? It is. And again, I same comment I just made, which is the Olympics does offer, always presents the opportunity to experiment with new television media technologies. Uh, HD was an experiment back in 02. Uh, Virtual reality is something we are beginning to work with at NBC Sports, as are many of our peers. And we will work with uh, OBS, again, the host broadcaster, who's keenly interested in also advancing the Olympic viewing experience through the adoption of evolving technology. In this case, it's a partnership with them and Samsung, Uh, who is an Olympic sponsor and an advertiser on NBC's Olympic coverage, to invest in a daily 
uh, VR offering uh, of a single event. So we will move around, spend a few days at a particular venue, and then move to another. And of course, we'll start with the opening ceremony and finish with the closing ceremony. And it's a, it's a today's virtual reality experience, which I have sampled have been blown away by and very curious to see how the audience reacts around uh, what's made available. So we're talking some many minutes per day of one event right. in virtual reality. Yeah, an entire an entire event. So two or three hours a day. It's about 85 hours roughly of virtual reality coverage that we'll make available to a Samsung mobile phone owner. And what has been the toughest part for the Rio Games? Every Olympics comes with its own challenges. I was covering the tech of the 2010 uh, Winter Games in Vancouver, and I remember there wasn't enough snow at some of the venues. That's a, that's a really tough problem. Obviously, um, you know, we've heard some about some tough challenges um, for Rio. Certainly Zika comes to mind. What have been the real challenges thus far? Um, you know, Brazil's a, a wonderful country. The IOC seven years ago decided... Uh, to move the Olympics for the first time to South America, to a country that at that moment in time was seeing tremendous economic growth. And since about 2013, they struggled uh, on the backs of falling oil prices, uh, a corruption scandal at their largest oil and gas company, uh, now some corruption and scandal around some of their politicians, and so an economic struggle to a country that was emerging has created some challenges. But because the city of Rio had architected a plan when they convinced the IOC to award them the rights, which was built on the back of both private money and a plan designed to enhance the quality of life of the citizens of Rio, that that city has remained very much committed to the success of the Olympics and these projects designed to create a successful Olympics, but also a better lifestyle in Rio. And I think for that reason, the, the people of Rio and Brazil have never wavered from their commitment to delivering a successful Olympics. And the result of that We've done incredibly well there. We've had more difficult times preparing in a home city or a host city for an Olympics than we're having in Rio. In fact, we're having you know, a really solid time moving in our equipment, our people building out our broadcast space. So fingers crossed, because the world can change on a dime, but we believe it's going to be a fantastic Olympics in a fantastic, stunning location with people who are going to welcome the 500,000 visitors and 10,000 athletes uh, with open arms and celebrate alongside them. So from an infrastructure perspective, not, not the toughest uh, situation you guys have faced by a long stretch? Obviously, Zika is not something anyone's dealt with in the past. Um, can you talk a little bit about what it's meant both from, a, you know, NBC, you know, convincing its own talent? Obviously, you have some uh, on-air and off-air people that are pregnant that aren't going to be making the trip. Talk about what that's meant, how you guys have approached it. Um, certainly, there have been some people calling for the games to be postponed, saying it's a bad idea to have that many people in a place with a disease we don't understand that well. Yeah, well... Well, welcome to the world. Uh, 
in the world that I have had the good fortune to travel around and work at now uh, will be my 11th Olympics. It's hard to remember a location or an Olympics where there wasn't issues that concerned us, that concerned those who might travel uh, and work in the local city. Uh, Zika is a, you know, a, a scary, infectious disease. There are questions that haven't been fully answered. We know a few things. We know a lot, actually, because there's been so much work done over the course of the last five or six months as it has emerged as a, as a large concern through the CDC, World Health Organization, and others, which is, yes, if you're pregnant, the recommendation is you don't go because the connection between Zika and birth defects has been established. If you're not, you take precautions, and if you're very, very, very unlucky, you contract Zika, and it's you know a few, a few bad days. But the information that's flowing most recently that some of us knew but were hoping it would take over some of the conversation is that the mosquito population in Rio during their winter months of July and August is significant, significantly diminished. And so the actual risk, especially if you're a traveler in an air-conditioned building, hotel, workspace, and, or out on a field of play, of contracting the virus, encountering a mosquito, is very, very, very slim. I think that that message is, is circulating. And again, those who are pregnant, and, and obviously there are, are some on our workforce, uh, are not going to go. Those who are not and feel comfortable about the circumstances I just described are going to go. And that is virtually everybody so far, but for a handful. But you're letting employees make the call? Absolutely. I mean, anybody who has indicated, we've made this very clear, anybody who has concerns, uh, we fully understand it. As I said, we have an operation in Stanford that's 1,100 people strong. We have a few people have moved to Stanford, and a few who are going to work in Stanford are going to work in Rio. Uh, so I think it. Uh, like everything, when the when the athletes march into the stadium on August 5th, uh, if not a few days before, the stories, uh, what comes out of Rio really becomes about them. They're coming, uh, with a few exceptions, and it becomes less about all the concerns that we always experience in the lead up to an Olympics. And the last of those concerns that I think has come up a bunch recently is around uh, doping and the Russian team, the track and field team appears not going to be headed to the Olympics, perhaps uh, broader issues with the Russian team. As somebody that likes telling good stories, is it always a bummer if a certain country isn't there or some of the competitors aren't there? How do you guys think about that? Well, I think you, you want the best of the best, and I think the athletes in every one of these sport disciplines wants the best of the best to be competing in the Olympics. It's early to react completely to what's happening. The IAAF made their ruling uh, that the Russian track team, governing body of track, the IOC today has uh, essentially validated that ruling, uh, has acknowledged that if the Russian uh, Olympic Committee wants to take that ruling to the Court of uh, Arbitration of Sport that you know they will certainly recognize uh, any ruling. But the key here is that the integrity of the competition is paramount. Uh, this franchise, which is 
uh, a century plus old uh, rides on the back of that integrity. And we are, of course, uh, encouraged and, and expect uh, that the IOC and the international federations that do govern uh, the Olympic competition take very, very seriously doping, which, of course, is unfortunate for the vast majority of those competing uh, who are clean. So it will continue to unfold. We want clean athletes to compete. We want the best in the world to compete uh, fairly. And we think these games are going to be fantastic. So we've talked about some of the, the clouds. There's always clouds, as you point out. What are you most looking forward to? Uh, what do you think, uh, you know, I imagine golf for you, but I mean, in general, you know, what are some of the things that you're most excited about? Well, uh, there's some great stories. Michael Phelps comes back, uh, had announced he was going to retire, uh, has gotten married, has, has a child on the way, has recommitted himself to to swimming, has had some great results, and uh, he's just a tremendous uh, individual. Uh, he is a great ambassador for the Olympics and what it stands for, and so we look forward to uh, him getting back in the in an Olympic pool uh, and again competing to beat only his own records, uh, 18 golds and 22 total medals. Uh, he has rivals, Ryan Lochte, a great American swimmer who has gone through some of his own uh, changes since London, is you know maybe one of the, if not one of the best uh, American swimmers of all time lived a little bit in, in Michael's shadow. They, they swim against each other, I know, in one particular discipline, maybe more. Uh, it'll be great to see uh, him back and that rivalry play out. There's a, a young woman named Katie Ledecky who was very young back in London, won a medal then, has been dominant in distance swimming. Uh, fantastic young woman who, you know, if she performs at the level that we've been watching her perform at, uh, is going to be a phenom there as well. Gabby Douglas, who was the American female gymnast uh, who won the individual gold in London, she comes back, uh, again, very competitive, uh, very unusual for an Olympian in gymnastics to repeat. I think it's been done since Nadia Comaneci. But there's a new women's gymnast named Simone Biles, uh, who did not compete in London, came on the scene and has won the three world championship individual golds in a row since the London Games. So she's a, a fantastic athlete. There's Carrie Walsh, who is the beach volleyball uh, three-time gold medal winner, comes back again, family older, you know, perhaps, you know, not quite in the uh, physical shape, I mean, in the physical shape she was, but just uh, older, um, has a new partner, is competing on Brazil's sand on Copacabana Beach uh, against uh, the Brazilian chief rivals of hers and is going for that fourth consecutive gold medal. And I can't wait to see, hopefully, a final at midnight on Copacabana Beach, Carrie Walsh going for that fourth gold medal, probably really fighting her way to uh, the finish line. The, in the indoor volleyball team's Brazil's probably second biggest sport is volleyball after soccer. And they have both super strong, if not world best teams in men and women. The Americans are pretty good um, on both the men and women's side. That's a venue that'll be wild, uh, home turf again, but the American volleyball 
team should give the Brazilians a run, so we're excited about that. And then you have Usain Bolt, and you have a, a distance runner named Galen Rupp, who's an American who not only will race in the 10,000, but has qualified in the marathon. I'm not sure anybody's done the 10,000 a few days later run a marathon uh, in the Olympics. You got the women's soccer team, uh, the women's water polo team. You have these incredible women's teams that did so well uh, in London. Really, really a big part of the the story in London was the success of the U.S. Uh, women, among others. So again, wildly excited about that, and just really excited about Brazil and Rio. It's stunning. It's a very, very spirited population. Uh, who, yes, are going through some hard times, but have shown enormous resilience. And we expect uh, we'll, again, celebrate wildly alongside these athletes as they get their once-every-four-year chance to, to perform. So all these big stories going to be on the various networks of NBC. If you really want to watch badminton or table tennis, you don't have to miss a minute of those either, either on uh, digital platforms, on demand. If you're half my age, you're going to be able to watch some of this on Snapchat. Uh, Gary, it was great talking to you. Thanks for coming by. I'm going to throw it back to my boss, Kara Swisher, to play us out. All yours, Kara. Thanks, Ina Fried, for that fantastic interview with Gary Zenkel of NBC Olympics. If you enjoyed the interview as much as I did, be sure to subscribe to the show. Be the first to listen to future episodes or catch up on previous episodes, including some really fantastic interviews I've done with Representative Nancy Pelosi, comedian Chelsea Handler, and investor Chamath Pali Hapatia, just to name a few. You can find all those interviews and more at recode.net slash decode. Now that you're done with this, why not try one of our other podcasts? Recode Media with Peter Kaffa comes out every Thursday. On Fridays, I host Too Embarrassed to Ask along with Lauren Good of The Verge. And on Recode Replay, you can find audio from our events like the Code Conference, Peter Kafka's Code Media, and Jason Del Rey's Code Commerce. Thanks for listening. Thank you to our sponsors, Audible, SoFi, ThoughtWorks, and Oxford Road. Also, thanks to Digital Media, which distributes the show. This has been another episode of Recode Decode. Remember to subscribe to the show and leave us a review at iTunes.com slash Recode Decode. I'll be back here Monday with another great guest. Tune in then. This has been Recode Decode, hosted by Kara Swisher, powered by digital media. For more hard-hitting interviews with insiders from the worlds of tech, media, and politics, subscribe to Recode Replay on iTunes, featuring candid conversations with leading voices like AOL CEO Tim Armstrong, Goldman Sachs' CIO Marty Chavez, the team behind the hit TV show Empire, Shark Tank investor Mark Cuban, and presidential candidate Hillary Clinton. They're all on Recode Replay.